Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. This is Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and really, could this have been, Eric, a more boxing-y boxing week? Um, we've had some fights announced. We've had some fights fall apart. Um, we've had tests have been failed. We've had one big fight reach an unsatisfactory conclusion. Um, and in the midst of all the crazy news in the world of boxing this week, I do want to assure everybody uh, that this podcast is clean. Um, we are tested regularly. Yes. Uh, we are tested for wit. We are tested for knowledge. We are tested for basic fundamental ability to podcast. And those tests do come up negative <laughs> each and every time. And and I do want to take this opportunity. I don't want to, you know, get all, all misty-eyed, Eric. But I do think it's appropriate to give a big shout-out to the Podcasters Anti-Doping Agency, or PANDA, for helping make our lack of talent a matter of, of public record. Uh, Eric, is there anyone, while we're, while we're in this kind of mood, is there anyone you want to give a shout-out to? Yeah, you know, f- funny you should ask. Uh, as it so happens, I want to give a shout-out to Omaha, Nebraska! Actually, I want to give a shout out to Brian McIntyre, Terrence Crawford's right. trainer. Uh, of all the things that that went down this weekend uh, or in the past week or, or, or so in boxing, uh, that that was maybe the highlight. That that man is a hero. He single handedly <laughs> justified the otherwise pointless practice of asking a distracted trainer a few <laughs> generic questions in the corner during the fight. I mean, after decades of awkward interviews that have added nothing to countless broadcasts. McIntyre made up for all of it in about 20 seconds of cursing and giving a quick shout out to Omaha. Trainer of the year. That competition is over. He has my vote for trainer of the year. Yeah, if uh, if Amir Khan had any or Amir Khan's fans had any kind of thought that their guy had a shot <laughs> and that Crawford and his team were in any way worried about the way the fight was progressing. They only had to see that little uh, that little interview to realize, yeah, these guys are not worried. No, not in the least. <laughs> All right, we have quite the jam-packed podcast for you. Uh, as mentioned, we've got fights to review, fights to preview, and we have a fighter to interview. I'm a poet, poet and I don't know it. Huh? <laughs> later you, on. Or maybe you do know it. And now everybody else does. Yes. Um, later on in the show, we will look back at the Crawford Khan fight that we were just talking about uh, and other action. We will break down the highlights and indeed lowlights of this past news week. And uh, shortly we will interview one of the men Headlining on Showtime this Saturday, lightweight contender Robert Easter Jr. But first, let's talk a little bit about Easter behind his back. And uh, let's explore the ins and outs of his fight against Rancis Barthelemy. Yeah, this card emanates from the Chelsea inside of the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas, uh, home to maybe the best breakfast buffet in Vegas, yes. at the Wicked Spoon. Uh, check it out if you're willing to spend $40 for breakfast. <laughs> um, anyway, the broadcast starts at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific on Saturday. And uh, fun fact, Rancis Kid Blast Barthelemy of Cuba was actually on the very first boxing card at the Cosmopolitan back in 2011. Both fighters here have one defeat. Barthelemy is 27-1 and with 14 KOs. His only loss coming in 2018 against Kirill Relic. And Robert Easter Jr. is 21-1, and also with 14 KOs. His lone loss also coming last year at the hands of Mikey Garcia. This fight is for a vacant lightweight belt, uh, but it is needlessly vacant. Uh, this is the result of shameless alphabet money-making shenanigans. A sanctioning body whose belt Vasily Lomachenko possesses is popping out another title in the same division. So ignore that. Think of this as a fight between two proven title contenders. Uh, and back to that Easter loss to Garcia that I mentioned. 
this is Easter's first fight since. Do you see the possibility of that loss taking something out of him or shaking his confidence as a plot line to watch for here? Well, that, of course, is the question, Eric. <laughs> Which is why I asked it. Very good. Ah, you'll be looking for an answer for me. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> you never know, do you, how a young fighter, especially a highly touted young fighter, mm. is going to respond to that first loss, uh, especially when the loss was kind of a shellacking, uh, as was the case for Easter against Garcia. You know, you think maybe of like uh, a David Lemieux, who was undefeated and touted. He lost to Marco Antonio Rubio, and then he lost again next time out before getting his feet back under him. I, I guess the difference is the between that kind of a scenario and, and what Easter's going through here is that uh, Easter wasn't upended by someone who he's supposed to have beaten. Uh, this right. wasn't a case of a, you know, a, a young prospect going against a battle-hardened veteran and being exposed. Uh, it was always going to be a difficult contest. It's the biggest fight of his career against the guy who, at the time, and perhaps even still, uh, was on a fair few pound-for-pound lists, uh, and a guy who himself was undefeated at that point. So... I guess the sensible thing for him to do is to look, take it as a learning experience, you know, more along the lines of a Canelo against Floyd Mayweather than a Lemieux mm. against Rubio, right? Like a talented guy who maybe wasn't quite ready for that step up um, against a possible future Hall of Famer. I mean, look, if he looks at the fights before that and the people he beat, guys like Argenis Mendes, Richard Comey, who's like in line to fight Lomachenko, um, Javier Fortuna, he's been beating very good opposition. Uh, so hopefully he'll just take that Garcia fight as a lesson to be learned. Uh, and, and be all the better for it. Uh, meanwhile, as you mentioned, you know, Bartholomew has one defeat as well. And perhaps the biggest question mark around him, you know, it might be his weight rather than that loss. He held titles at 130, at 135, moved up to 140 in 2017, and he, and he struggled there. Uh, before he lost to Relic, he won a highly controversial decision over him. Uh, that resulted in a rematch being ordered, and, and Relic won the rematch handily. So, And now Bartholomew's decided to go back so lightweight. So the question for you is, is that the right move or are there reasons to be a bit concerned about a fighter who's moving up and then back down? Well, there's always reason to be a little concerned when a fighter does that moves back down in weight because we've seen it backfire most famously with Roy Jones when he went up to heavyweight right. and then back down. But also Oscar De La Hoya trying to get back down to 147 to fight Manny Pacquiao, Chris Bird dropping down late in his career, etc. Right. This is a much less extreme case with Bartholomew. He went up five pounds, didn't bulk up noticeably, didn't have his best results at 140, as you said. So now he's coming back down five pounds, probably back to his best weight, his ideal weight to be at, I would think. So I think the chances are low that it's going to prove problematic for him. Uh, I think this is the right move. I think Easter is a perfect opponent to test himself against. You know, no sense wasting time at age 32 with, with easy fights that you know you're going to win. Take a test where you might win, you might lose, and to win positions you for a bigger opportunity. Mm. Uh, and, and I also like the fact that Bartholomew is now working with Joel Casamayor as his new head trainer. Casamayor, of course, one of the best Cuban fighters of the era, maybe the best Cuban pro of the last couple of decades. He seems a good stylistic fit for Bartholomew in the corner. So I'm very curious to see that partnership tested against a top opponent mm. in Easter. Um, and speaking of stylistic fits, there's a lot of intrigue here about how these guys will match up stylistically in the ring. They're both tall for the division. Easter is 5'11", Bartholomew is 5'10". So they'll both be facing an opponent taller than what they're used to facing. Also, Bartholomew likes to switch stances. Not sure if that'll be an issue for Easter, though, who, who fought lefties in two of his last three fights. What style of fight 
should we expect, Kieran? Is this going to be two tall guys both trying to keep it on the outside? And do you expect to see Bartholomew switching from orthodox to southpaw and trying to prevent Easter from getting comfortable? So to take the last bit first, uh, he might. I mean, from what I've seen of Bartholomew, when, when he does that, when he switches back and forth, he did a lot against Antonio Mar- DeMarco, for example. It, mm-hmm. it looks to me like it's often when he's laying traps for guys, generally shorter guys, as you talk, as you mentioned, they're both they're both pretty tall. They're not too used to fighting guys their own their own height. He's laying traps for for opponents, short opponents who are coming forward, and he looks to switch and land land counters from an, an unorthodox stance that they're not expecting. So he'll do that, I'm sure, if that's the kind of fight that he's to fight. But the question is, is that the kind of fight that he's to fight? Um, but when I, you know, this is a bit more interesting to me the more that I've looked into it than I initially suspected because one of the things that intrigues me is is yet you've got two guys who are tall for their for their weight and yeah they do both like to fight from the outside but neither of them are really fancy awkward defensive tall guys Mm. Uh, we'll see if that changes with Casamayor and Bartholomew's corner that might be interesting but you know Bartholomew you know as you mentioned he's Cuban he's a little bit closer to say our latter day Arislandi Lara than the Lara of a few years ago for example Uh, yes he'll work on the outside He'll move around looking to find a good angle or lure you into onto a punch. But he isn't the kind of guy who's always moving backwards and trying to get you to come, you know, come toward him. Despite his height, it looks to me like he's often trying to come forward. And, and what makes this interesting to me is so is Easter. Um, both men are actually fairly st- often straightforward, straight line, come forward boxers, classic boxer punches, if you like. Mm with the difference that they're able to do so more effectively from the outside than a lot of their opponents are. And I, so I find that quite intriguing because, you know, often if you picture tall opponents up against each other, you imagine it might be a jab fest and, you know, it might be that. But I think both of these guys, and I think Easter perhaps a little bit more than Bartholomew, will be attempting to impose himself somewhat. You know, each guy will be looking to land body shots as well as power shots upstairs. But at the same time, each will be cautious and aware of what can come back at them. So, like I said, I find myself a little bit more intrigued and interested in how this fight might unfold and in the sort of style matchup than than I initially suspected would be the case. So, um, as we talked about, look, both men have one defeat. Neither man wants to lose again so soon after their first loss, obviously. Uh, interesting situation for both. Um, which guy do you think has more to gain with a win and which one will be more devastated by a loss? Well, I, I know that I just said that it's good that Bartholomew is testing himself and taking a risk against Easter, but I think he clearly is the one who can least afford a defeat. Um, don't get me wrong. A, a loss is bad for right. Easter too, because it would be his second in a row, but Bartholomew is 32 years old. People think he lost both relic fights. So if he loses this one too, and he kind of slips from contender to gatekeeper, I think. Mm. Um, And he's not a guy who sells a lot of tickets with his fighting style. So he needs to be winning to stay relevant. So he's the guy with the steeper losing downside. As for winning upside, it follows then that Easter is the guy who has more to gain. He's in his prime at 28. He tends to make entertaining fights. You could see him potentially as an opponent for Vasily Lomachenko at some point. I mean, Richard Comey is someone who seems to be on the verge of getting that Loma shot, and Easter holds a split decision win over Comey. So despite losing to Mikey, Easter is in that kind of a mix with a win here. But as always, it helps not just to win, 
but to win impressively. Uh, we plan to ask Easter about this uh, in just a moment, but a knockout win definitely wouldn't be a bad thing for him here. All right, there's a little bit of foreshadowing there. So uh, it's all very well, you and I talking about this. Uh, but why don't we go ahead, get the perspective of somebody who's thought about this fight a lot more than we have, a lot longer than we have, who's far more invested in it and uh, has, frankly, more at stake and has a lot of say in how it's actually going to end. So we are joined now by the man who is one of the two headliners of next week's Showtime Championship Boxing main event, Robert Easter Jr. Robert, thank you so much for joining the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Robert, through your first 21 fights, you were undefeated. And now, for the first time in your career, you enter the ring without a zero next to your name. After you lost to Mikey Garcia in July, how hard was it to get over that? Was there like a down period at all where you, you struggled with motivation after after suffering your first defeat? Um, No struggling with motivation. But, you know, it was, of course, it was the first loss, so I was down. Uh about that but you know this is my career you know this is uh boxing you know things happen so you know i had to get right back to the drawing board and um and get right back to it and uh work on work on certain things that um i felt that i messed up in that fight and um just went back to the drawing board perfected my craft and worked on it and um now you have it fighting for another title I'm curious if there were some things in particular that you learned from that fight. I assume you've gone back and looked at it. And, and I'm wondering, are there things that you take away from how you've trained? Uh, are you doing anything differently now? Um, I mean, you had such a great career, you know, up to that, where nothing had really gone wrong for you. Is there, is there any real difference in the way you're approaching this fight because of what happened with Mikey uh, Garcia? Um, not, not necessarily. But you know, I, not once have I looked at that fight. Oh, okay. I have looked at that fight. Um, I, I know everything that went wrong that I did wrong in the fight, so no need to look back at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I went back. You know, went back strength and conditioning, getting stronger, better win, keep them all running. Of course, the gym work as well. You know, I felt it was a lot of areas that I I were slacking in in the gym that I wasn't doing, you know, that I had to you know, stay on top of it now and stay focused. Um, so you're on an interesting streak right now. You started your career with 14 knockouts in your first 17 wins. Uh, now you're on a streak of five straight distance fights. It's, it's, it's been a little while right. since you, since you got to enjoy the feeling of knocking somebody out. Oh, yeah. Um, are you, are oh, you yeah. hungry for a knockout uh, against Bartholomew? And, and is he a dangerous uh, fighter to go in there hoping or, or trying to knock out? Oh my God! Uh, yeah, the, 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 the thought of knocking an opponent out is always good, but you you don't go in a fight looking to knock somebody out. You know, if it happens, it happens. Mm-hmm. You know, my 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 goal is to go in there and put on a great great dominant performance. And you know, if the knockout comes, it comes. And um, of course, every 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 fighter you step in the ring with is dangerous. You know, uh, Bartholomew. He's a very crafty, tricky fighter, you know, uh, a Cuban fighter, uh, but he's a veteran game. But, you know, I'm, I'm more concerned about myself. I'm, I'm, I'm going through things my way. Mm-hmm. But 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 that is something then that, that's been on your mind, uh, you know, si- over these recent fights. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that, oh, yeah. that, that, that like, course. boy, it's been a little it's been a little while. I kind of kind of kind of want to feel a knockout. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> oh yeah, like I said, man, we went back to the drawing board. You know, my goal was to get stronger, faster, and uh, use my my head more. You know, mm-hmm. use my, my my thinking skills more. So Bartholomew, he went one and one against Kirill Relic, and and a lot of people thought he should have lost both those fights. Um, right, did right. you do you watch those fights? I mean, what did you take from them? Is there something um, in particular about what he did that you want to replicate? I I I looked at those fights. Uh, I probably looked at, at those fights once or twice. You know, um, Relic is a, a, a very tough opponent as well. Yeah. But every 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 fighter is different. You know, I yeah. I I don't fight like Relic, so I really can't go off what he did. You know, a little bit, but we don't have the same fight style. So right. therefore, this fight might not be the same. You know, well, it's not going to be the same because we're two different fighters. You know, mm-hmm. like I said, I know what I'm bringing to the table, so and I got to apply that pressure and do what I do best and apply my skills. Um, now, I know fighters try not to look ahead, uh, but let's say that you defeat Barthelemy on Saturday. Who's on your radar? Um, particularly, uh, you know, d- despite the, the politics involved in making the mm-hmm. fight, is Lomachenko like the ultimate goal for you? Um, not only Lomachenko, you know, there's other champions out there, but of course I want all the champions, you know, and whatever fights make sense, you know. Okay, and so particularly, do do you think uh, Lomachenko is a fight that can eventually be made? Oh yeah, that, that that fight can definitely be made, you know. But like I said, only time will tell. Okay. Hey. Speaking of other top fighters, sort of in your division and around your division, um, I'm curious for your thoughts. You know, having faced Mikey Garcia last year uh, on his loss to Errol Spence, were, were you at all surprised how that fight turned out? Oh no, I wasn't surprised. You know, I I knew you know what Errol Spence was capable of and what he was going to do. I was I thought he was going to actually stop him, but I just mm. knew Errol Spence was just way too strong, you know, mm. way too strong for him. Mm-hmm. Were you impressed by his jab, especially? It wasn't. It didn't even seem to be just the size. It was. It was almost like Spence wasn't just bigger. He seemed better, and that jab of his really controlled everything. Yeah, yeah. Earl Spence always had a good jab. You know, since mm-hmm. the Amherst days, he always had a good, hard jab. You know, Earl Spence had punches since we were younger. You know, so that's why I said I knew how that fight was going to turn out because Earl Spence is a, you know, naturally stronger guy. Mm-hmm. So there's another fighter uh, that I want to ask you about. You're a, a longtime friend uh, of Adrian Broner. Um, I'm very curious. Is, is the Adrian Broner that we see when the cameras are on the same guy that you know when the cameras are off? Uh, Adrian Broner is Adrian Broner. You know whether the cameras are on his face or, uh, or, uh, or, uh, or off. You know, Adrian Broner is always... Uh, 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 a firecracker, you know, he's, he's exciting to be around. He's a good guy, you know. Uh, some things that come out of his mouth, everybody don't agree with, but, you know, uh, I know him and knowing him, he's actually a good person, you know, with everybody make the scene, make him, make him out to be. Right. So, I mean, he, he does certainly take a lot of criticism. Do you feel like it's unfair or, or is it warranted based on the things that he does say and do publicly? Um... The, the sport we the sport we're in, you know the limelight we're in, you know we're gonna get that. So mm. you are gonna get people that like you or dislike you. So that that just that just come with the sport. All right, let's uh, 
end with a with a final question. Get back to to your fight um, this Saturday, and in as much as you want to want to you know give anything away, I'm wondering what you feel is is likely to be the single most important factor for you going in there. You said, he, as you mentioned, he's a really tricky fighter, Cuban guy. What is the thing that you absolutely have to do in the ring to make sure you get your hand raised? Um, box box smart. You know, be mm. smart. Like I said, he's a very tricky and crafty guy. So I just have to be smart, go out there, be myself, and uh, make less mistakes and, and, and just dominate the fight. You know, and, and, and uh, like I said before, uh, control the tempo. You know, yeah. control the tempo of this fight. I got to say, it says a lot for you, I think, that a lot of people coming off their first defeat and with a lot of time off, you could have had a much easier comeback opponent. Bartholomew's a really dangerous guy to come back against. It obviously suggests that you want to get back up to the top as soon as you possibly can. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the, the level I was already on before the defeat, you know, right. I would have faced these guys. You know, like I said, um, I don't even want those big fights out there. And that's what Al, Al does. You know, he makes that happen. So, you know, um, Bartholomew just happened to be one of those guys, one of those guys I got to get through. Right, right. right. Well, look, man, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your training camp. It's just a few days before the fight, so I really do appreciate you doing that and, and joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. That was fun. Good of Robert to chat with us so close to a big fight. Uh, one thing he said that I have to comment on, uh, I occasionally listen to Adam Carolla's podcast, and he has this bit about how when you ask someone a question about somebody else and they have unflattering thoughts about that person, they always describe them just by saying their name. Like, hey, what's Mariah Carey really like? Oh, Mariah. Well, Mariah is Mariah. Uh, that, that's an easily crackable code for Mariah is an insane bitch. Uh, so I just found it hilarious that Robert answered the Broner question with Adrian Broner is Adrian Broner. I, I think we all know exactly what that means. Yes, yes, indeed. And that's one of his buddies. Yes. <laughs> All right. Hey, well, we didn't ask Robert Easter Jr., but I think we both know who he's picking to win on Saturday. I, I <laughs> right. hope we both know who's picking to win on Saturday. But let's make our predictions, uh, and then we'll talk about the undercard a little bit. Remember, folks, uh, you can vie for cash and prizes by making your own picks at DraftKings.com slash Showtime. Uh, in our competition, I gained a wee bit of ground in the Shields Hammer fight, but Eric... Still leads 31-26. And Eric, uh, you are up first with your Easter Bartholomew prediction. So Easter wants the knockout, but he says he's not going to push for it. And I think that's wise. Uh, Bartholomew is absolutely the kind of opponent where you have to let it come if it's going to come. I favor Easter here. I think he's clearly the bigger puncher. He's the younger, fresher fighter. And he can box just fine. I don't see Bartholomew making him look silly in there. But he's going to have to be patient. Uh, especially if Bartholomew is switching stances. Uh, you know, yes, Easter can handle fighting southpaws. He, he's done it a bit recently, but he's going to have to work for his openings. This has all the makings to me of a fight that goes the distance and is close. Um, although sometimes weird stuff happens. You talked about how this might not be the sort of fight that it looks like at first glance, where these guys may actually be a little more aggressive uh, th than we sort of picture them being in our minds. Uh, there could be the potential for this to be one of those unexpected wars where both guys are tasting the yeah. canvas, letting it all hang out. 
But my guess is it's more boxing match than slugfest, that it goes the distance and that Easter outworks Bartholomew and lands the more telling blows and wins a close unanimous decision. Any difference of opinion here? No. Um, I mean, the first note that I had down here is that, that it is going the distance. And you, you just alluded it just now. You know, we were talking with Robert and he mentioned that he's in a bit of a non-KO streak. But but over the last several years, he uh, looks positively Tyson-esque compared to Bartholomew. Um, Bartholomew had 11 stoppages in his first 14 wins. And in his subsequent 13 wins, he's had just three stoppages over a period that extends back uh, more than seven years. That said, he can still produce good power at the right moments. His first fight with Argenis Mendes was ruled a no contest because he landed punches after the bell to end the second round. But he had him in all kinds of trouble um, and had knocked him down early in that round. Um, and Easter does have that same kind of ability to land a swift overhand right or hook that can catch an opponent completely by surprise and hurt him. And it's interesting. This could be, to me, one of those fights that it seems to be trucking along. It's in a groove. We're, we're all set in for a distance fight. And then suddenly somebody lands a fast punch or combination that turns things around or even ends it right out of the blue. It's entirely possible yeah. that something like that happens. But no, my wager is still on a distance fight, uh, particularly, you know, given the nature of the two men's styles, the fact that both are pretty resilient, even though each guy has been down twice in his career. Uh, this is that kind of fight, and, and this is sort of similar to what you were saying. It's going to be one at the margins, right? Like a lot of rounds are going to be close. And there are going to be a lot of rounds that are going to leave judges trying to figure out things like who's controlling the ring a little better, who's trying to make the fight a little bit more. And and those advantages, I expect, are going to be with Easter. I just think he's a little bit more likely to be the one to come forward. He's a little bit more likely to be the guy cutting off the ring successfully. He's a little bit more likely to land that extra clean shot each round. But it is going to be close, uh, quite close indeed. I wouldn't be surprised if it winds up being a majority decision uh, with, one, with one card maybe a little bit different from the others. Uh, but I think in the end, uh, we're going to have a, as you said, a close but unanimous decision win for Robert Easter Jr. All right. Well, then that means I am guaranteed through this fight, at least, to uh, make my five-point lead. Yes. Indeed so, sir. <laughs> Let us uh, look at the uh, undercard. And in the co-feature, former 140-pound title holder Victor Postol is trying to make his way back to the upper echelons of the sport after going two and two in his last four. Uh, he fights for the first time on Showtime against a little-known French Southpaw, Mohamed Mimoun. Uh, these are not big punchers. Postal is 30-2 and two with 12 KOs, but Mimoun is 21-2 and two with just two KOs. Yes, two. <laughs> um, together, over the last six years, these fighters have combined for a total of three KO wins in 23 fights. So, layup of a question here for you, Eric. You think we're going to see some rounds here? Um... <laughs> And also, subsequent to that, slightly harder, do you think that Postal could have another run in him uh, and compete with the best at 140 pounds? Uh, yes, I, I do. Uh, to answer the trivial question, uh, I do expect that we will see some rounds here, although, although we're not quite making our predictions just yet, so I won't say exactly how many rounds. But this one's not going to be over too quickly. I, I think we're, we can confidently say that. Um, as for you know what Postal's future holds, if he's going to have another run in him, he needs to get it started now as he's 35 years old. Um, I'm not sure about whether he can compete with the best. I think he can no. get into the mix and get some more opportunities. But that Josh Taylor loss, I'm struck by no. how one-sided it was. That has me thinking the best of Postal is behind him. And, you know, he, he fits in just fine with the bottom part of the top 10 at 140 pounds, like Ray Beltran, maybe Maurice Hooker. 
When you get up near the top, guys like Taylor, Regis Progre, Mikey Garcia, I don't think Postal can succeed at that level. Uh, but, you know, you have to go step by step. Let's see what he can do against Mamoon, then assess. Uh, Mamoon, meanwhile, uh, goes by the nickname The Problem. Uh, I've never met him, but I'll go ahead and declare him the most likable fighter in the sport with that moniker. Uh, I've, I've, ne- <laughs> I've, I've never heard Mamoon described by his friends as Mohammed Mamoon is Mohammed Mamoon. So there's that. <laughs> um, American fans are probably unfamiliar with Mamoon. Is there anything in his record or in the bits of YouTube footage of him that tells you whether he can hang with Postal. So he's an awkward looking dude from stylistically speaking. Uh, he's a southpaw. He's got that crouching wide stance kind of style from what I can tell. He's not exactly Victor Chinian-esque. I mean, apart right. from anything else, he keeps his hands up a bit and he certainly isn't that aggressive. But, um, you know, he's got that slightly awkward looking style about him. Um, he's certainly not devoid of skill. He doesn't have very much on his resume. Uh, 147 pounds. He did score a split win that probably should have been unanimous over Sam Eggington. And uh, you may have recently saw him just a couple of weeks ago uh, being brutalized, Sam Eggington, uh, by Liam Smith at 154 pounds. Um, If you're just getting past Sam Eggington, then you're not in the league, certainly of a peak Victor Postol. Um, The question is how far from peak Victor Postol is Postol. Um, My sense, I'm just going to segue right into my prediction here, is that the only way I think that Postol loses this is that he is is completely done. If he is, you know, super fried and crispy, stick a fork in him done. I I think he's vastly technically superior to to Mamoon and with much more experience at a much higher level. The only question for me is notwithstanding both guys' lack of stoppages, whether Postol gets one here. Um, and I'm tempted to say he does. It, granted, I've seen far more of Postol than I have of Mimoon, and maybe I'm being very unfair to Mimoon, but it looks like there's a real quality discrepancy here. So I, I could see Postol getting the stoppage. We're not a knockout, not a you know knock him down, guy can't beat the count, but just the constant thudding, repetitive jab in the face, opening up a cut until eventually the doctor stops the car or the corner or the referee says, no, you've probably had enough. It's going to go a long while. But you know what? I'm going to say like a ninth round stoppage TKO for Victor Postol, just to be a bit different. All right. Well, you're not as different as you thought. I, I thought I was going to be going out on a little bit of a limb here <laughs> by, by going with the knockout. We don't have the same round, at least. Um, but yeah, Postol has shown late power in the past, you know, more power than his knockout rate suggests. Uh, his two best wins, he stopped Seljic Aiden in the 11th and Lucas Matisse in the 10th. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was looking at this fight thinking conventional wisdom dictated that it would go the full 12, but um, apparently the, you are not in line with conventional wisdom, neither am I. I say he hurts Mamoon late uh, and gives his career a little boost with a stoppage win. Just a gut feeling. I'm going with uh, Victor Postal KO 11. Yep. And opening the card is a heavyweight bout. Texas-based Nigerian prospect Efe Ajagba stepping up to his first scheduled 10-rounder against once-beaten German Michael Wallish. Ajagba is 9-0 with 8 KOs, and the only reason he doesn't have a perfect knockout rate is that 
Curtis Harper famously uh, or infamously exited the ring when the bell rang and it went down as a disqualification. Uh, that incident, by the way, is nearing one million hits on wow. YouTube. Um, so Ajagba has seven first round knockouts. Uh, so if Postal Mamoon is guaranteed to at least give us some rounds, this one is the opposite. This one has a great chance of being a quickie. Uh, how impressed are you with what you've seen of Ajagba so far? So I haven't seen much of him, and not because I haven't seen many of his fights. Um, when we first talked about this, I hadn't seen any outside of the non-fight that you just mentioned. <laughs> right. Now I feel like I've probably seen most of them, but the time combined for all of those is far less than I think Postal Manoon will take. Um, uh, but based on what I've seen, how little time he's been in the ring, gosh, i got to say, I really like the look of him um, mm -hmm. a lot. And, and obviously, look, he's bowling over a certain caliber of opponent at this stage in his career fair enough everybody has to start there unless you're Vasily Lomachenko um what I like is that unlike some other young touted prospects uh, like for example Joe Joyce he's got a really looks like he's got a very nice relaxed movement uh his legs don't seem to be stiff he doesn't have that Frankenstein's monster march forward um his upper body movement is smooth his punches are very relaxed he works off a nice jab his hands are actually quite fast for a big guy. Um, like I said, super, super, super early in his career. Don't want to get too carried away, but I really like what I've seen of him. I really mm -hmm. like it indeed. Um, Valish, meanwhile, lost by fifth round KO to Christian Hammer four months ago. It's his only loss, but there's really nobody among the 19 that he's beaten who's remotely uh, noteworthy. So even with a far greater experience, he's clearly the B-side here. So what is your prediction for this one? Anyway, we can see an upset, or does the Jaguar even get extended a few rounds here? I, I don't see an upset uh, based off what I've seen of Wallish. Uh, the loss to Hammer was telling. Uh, he doesn't have great stamina. He was tiring early in that one. His hands were dropping low, making his chin easy to find. And Wallace is pretty slow. Um, the Hammer fight really gave us a pretty good sense of what level he's at. It's a step up on paper for a Jagba. But still, Wallace is, is a slightly inflated 19-1. and one. So the key question that you ask, can he force Jagba to go some rounds? It depends on what you mean by going rounds. Uh, all, but, all but one of Ajagba's fights have ended in either the first or second round, um, you know, assuming the first round even begins. Uh, so right. <laughs> um, I guess if Wallace gets him into round three, that's an accomplishment. I don't quite think he will. Ajagba can really bang. Wallace is there to be hit. I'm going with Ajagba KO2. How about you? Yeah, I'm the very same. Uh, he's going to spend that first round very soon. He, he might be the kind of guy who goes in there thinking, ah, I can I can show this guy what's what. And then he's going to get hit a couple of times. And he is then going to spend the rest of the first round trying desperately to stay away. Uh, but I don't think he has the fleetness uh, like you said, or the stamina or, or the strength he, to do so. Uh, he doesn't seem to very much like fighting inside or to be very good at it. But eventually, so he's going to try to keep a Jogba away. But a Jogba's got that wonderful lengthy punch, that good jab, and a really nice straight right behind it. And he's going to catch up to him and he's going to stop banging him inside. And when he does, it's going to be curtains. But I am going to give Olish, like, he's got the credit of having just enough experience to get out of the first. Uh, it might be a really wobbly Amir Khan versus Terence Crawford first. <laughs> right. But I think he'll just get into the second. I, I also do not pick him to go into the third. So, yes, yeah, second round stoppage there. Okay. So, wow, even by our standards, that was terrible.
<laughs> and so at least we have one marginal disagreement. Right. If if the uh, postal fight ends in either the ninth or the eleventh, there will be some uh, point swing. Otherwise, we're both putting up the same number of points this yeah. coming week. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in addition to that Showtime triple header from Las Vegas, there are a few other noteworthy fights happening this weekend, including a big one on Friday. I'm glad this doesn't conflict with the Showtime card on Saturday because this is a great fight at the Forum in Inglewood, California. The super flyweight rematch between a Sriseket Sorong Visai and Juan Francisco Estrada. They met 14 months ago in a fight we covered for HBO. Uh, Sriseket won a majority decision. It was a fight of the year candidate. Each man has scored two wins since. Uh, this is my personal number seven pound for pound versus my number 11. In other words, these are really good fighters. Uh, any reason, Kieran, to expect something vastly different this time, something other than a close, excellent fight? No, not at all. Look, Juan Francisco Estrada, it's interesting. He's consistently in fights that are not only very good, but very close. Yeah. He, he's good enough to hang with and be essentially the equal to everyone at the top level of that division and thereabouts, but not so good that he can put daylight between himself and any of them, it seems. You know, it's like, like you said, his battle with Trisaket was terrific. Uh, several years back, he was the first to really push Chocolatito Gonzalez to the, to the limit. Uh, he squeaked past Carlos Cuadras, um, interestingly, we haven't seen Strisica in against anyone tough since, since his last fight with Estrada. Um, you know, he sort of went away. He needed to sort of sort some things out and, and is now sort of coming back into the big time for the first time since then. So yeah, basically every reason to expect another tough, close contest. I would be quite surprised if one guy clearly separates himself here. Um, it's a pretty solid undercard as well, including Daniel Roman versus TJ Doheny at 122 pounds and our buddy Jesse Vargas against Umberto Soto at 154. Anything leap out at you there in particular? Well, we said when Humberto Soto beat Brandon Rios in February that, hey, Soto isn't just good for a washed guy. He can still make a little noise on the non-washed circuit. Uh, so... I really like this fight with Vargas. You have to make Vargas the favorite. He's a, sure. a decade younger and doesn't have uh, time to make the donuts hair. Uh, but I, <laughs> to call back to my joke uh, from a couple months ago, um, but I think this fight is going to be sneaky good. And uh, Soto is going to do some of those crafty veteran things that he does and make Vargas work for it. And, and Roman Doheny is a good fight, too. Roman has won. 18 straight. Doheny is the less tested guy, but he's unbeaten. Solid fight here, uh, though Roman looks like the clear favorite. Um, one other card worth discussing this weekend. On Saturday, a couple of semifinal bouts in the current World Boxing Super Series tournaments from the Cajun Dome in Lafayette, Louisiana. Local rising star Regis Progre meets Kirill Relic, who we discussed earlier as a two-time Rancis Bartholomew opponent. That's at 140 pounds. The winner to meet the winner of Josh Taylor versus Ivan Baranchik, uh, we think. This tournament <laughs> yeah. has been plagued by money problems and threats from various fighters of pulling out. Uh, but in theory, that's where this one's headed. And on the same card, the bantamweight tournament continues with Nonito. You want to say it? No, no, it's all yours. It's all yours. <laughs> well, you can either Americanize it, Nonito Donaire, or Nonito Donaire versus Zolani Tete. Uh, the winner gets the winner of Naoya Inoui versus Emmanuel Rodriguez. Which of these two semifinal bouts on Saturday are you looking to forward to more, Kieran? Boy, I, I think they're both really interesting. Um, you know, Zolani Tete's 
really been gaining a reputation as one of the best guys at 115 and 118 over the last few years. Uh, he's 28 and three, I think, but he's on a 12 fight win streak dating back seven years or so. Um, he's clearly in a good groove. He'll be the favorite against an air, but Nonito, look, ever since he got squashed by Nicholas Walters, and I think we all thought it was all over mm-hmm. for him, um, he's really acquitted himself well, even when he stepped up against younger uh, top contenders. Yeah, obviously he was extremely fortunate to get past Ryan Burnett to earn this spot. Uh, Burnett suffered a back injury during during their contest, but even in losses, he fought well against Carl Frampton and Jesse Magdaleno. Um, so Tete, like I said, will be the favorite here, but not overwhelmingly so. Um, although I will add this, uh, I like Nonito, and I kind of hope he doesn't win if it means he would face Noya in Oway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not you that's know. not a reward. That is not that is not a reward. Uh, in the other semifinal, uh, the 140 pounder. Look, as as we talked about, um, you know, Kiro Rilek is a fun action fighter. He likes to get in close, really put you under pressure. But Progray feels like he he might be just a bit special, eh? a little bit of a cut above. There's been a good buzz about him for a while. Uh, if the final winds up being, as I imagine most suspect him and Taylor, that'll be some contest. So mm-hmm. this is a good card, and I'm looking forward to it. Yep. All right. Well, this podcast has all been looking ahead so far, uh, but there were a few fights this past weekend worth analyzing. So let's look backward for a few minutes, and we'll start with the biggest fight of the weekend, Terrence Crawford versus Amir Khan at Madison Square Garden. Crawford hurt and dropped Khan with a right hand in round one. It was all going pretty much according to script for the next few rounds. And then in the sixth, Bud landed a low left hand. It was on the thigh, maybe edge of the cup. And Khan said he couldn't continue. And that was that TKO win in the sixth for Crawford. Kieran, what are your feelings on the way the fight ended and the criticism that Khan is taking? Uh, heavy sigh, really. I mean, it made me a bit <laughs> sad, to be honest. Um, yeah. You know, Khan insists he didn't quit. And, and, and this is by the standard dictionary definition of the word. That's exactly what he did. But in boxing, there are all kinds of layers and permutations to that word. Mm-hmm. Um, look, he was getting beaten up badly. Um, I, I don't doubt that the low blow hurt him uh, just from his immediate reaction. It, it did hurt. But at the same time, he knew he was on the road to getting knocked out badly and soon. Um, and obviously Virgil Hunter knew it was basically over, and that's why he made the point of giving Amir the out mm-hmm. um, rather than sending him out there to end up twitching on the canvas, which he would have ended up doing very soon by the looks of things. Um, there was no chance of Amir turning that fight around, none at all. Uh, Virgil did what a good trainer does. He gave him the chance to avoid being more badly hurt and then helped him try to save face afterward. Uh, the thing that makes me especially sad about it is frustrating for Crawford because it wasn't very clean. It's frustrating for the crowd. Mm-hmm. It's frustrating for the people who bought the pay-per-view. But the other thing that makes me sad is that Amir's a good guy. And he's been a courageous and exciting fighter for many years. Right before it happened, I was scribbling on my notepad. Boy, you know, the guts of Khan for hanging in there. And that's always been the thing you've been able to say about Amir Khan. Um, he hasn't always helped himself with some of the numb nuts things he said over the years, Amir, <laughs> bless his heart. But he's gotten an unfair degree of, of, of criticism for a guy who's really given his all. And what makes me sad is that this would just make things worse in term, and, and from what I can tell already has in terms of how he's viewed and, and the reputation that he has. And and. That's just a darn shame because he's always given his all and he's always made for exciting fights. And, and the, the other thing that makes me sad about this is that 
that criticism will sting his pride mm. and it will make him want to keep going. He will say, I don't want to go out like this. And that's when fighters start to get into a problem because they keep saying, I don't want to get out like this. And it rarely gets better for them at that point. Um, in a strange way, it might have been better for him had he hung in there and gotten cleanly knocked out. That might have been an easier way for him to just say, to walk away. This is unclear and fussy and messy and nobody's satisfied and he's going to try and fight on but his time at the very top is clearly done yeah all of that is true and i agree with you completely that there have been times in his career where he took unfair criticism i think the criticism just isolated to the way this fight ended though would be warranted i mean the rules are clear accidental foul you get five minutes to recover if you can't it's a tko I feel criticism is warranted because Khan had five minutes and chose not to take it. Uh, you know, not why not take five minutes and see if you can go after that. That that's what tells you that Khan and by extension Virgil, uh, we're, we're looking for a way out. Um, so I don't know. He can say he's not a quitter, and he certainly has shown heart many times, but. That sure looked like a quit to me. Um, and I, and I can't know what he's feeling physically, but. If you're determined to win the fight at all costs, you tell the ref, give me my five minutes and then then we'll see. Sure. Um, and don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that, you know, he, he that's not what he did. Right. He, he obviously did in this instance. I just think it's unfair. It's, it's, gonna, it's unfortunate that that will further sully a reputation that doesn't necessarily deserve to have been sullied. Yeah. Yeah. And look, Khan knew how the fight was going and how the rest of it was going to go. Um, So, yeah. Um, Speaking of how the fight was going, what stood out to you in the five rounds leading up to that? Did you score any rounds for Khan? Did you think uh, in the first round when he was hurt that there was maybe a chance he wasn't even going to get out of that opening round? Yeah, I did. Actually, I thought, wow, this is going to be some statement. Just get it. Actually, it was, you know how we talked last week about how this might have been a no-win for, for Terrence, I actually did briefly think, oh, here we go. Like, he's just going right. to spark him out of there, and everyone's just going to say, well, Amir was done, and he's not going to get the credit for it. Um, I did not score any rounds for Amir. Um, I think what stood out to me was what we expected to stand out. Um, first of all, Crawford, holy cow, he's just outstanding again. He is just a stone-cold killer. He, he, he sized up his opponent. He took his time. Except for when he got a bit carried away in the second round when he thought he was going to get him out of there. He didn't just look for openings. He made openings. And then once he made openings, he took advantage of those opportunities when they arose. He switched from stance to stance as he does, not opportunistically, but deliberately. After taking his time in the orthodox position to size him up, he then switched in such a way to make maximum advantage of it. He, he did it deliberately and, frankly, with malice aforethought. Uh, it just it just showed levels. And what a fantastic talent Terence Crawford is, not just physically but intellectually in that in that ring. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think it also showed the other thing that I took away from it, again, what we already knew. Amir is a very good boxer, but for much of his career, he's been better than a B-level, but not quite an A-level. Um I was a little bit amused beforehand by some of the British media's sense of belief and hope, uh, as if they'd never seen Terence Crawford fight before. Uh, Khan was nowhere near Terence Crawford's class, um, and it showed. And at no stage in his career has Amir Khan been anywhere near Terence Crawford's class. Um, I think this fight highlighted what we already knew, which is that I think that Amir's hand speed has often masked his flaws, Mm. which are not just his chin. 
but that he's technically quite flawed. And he's not actually a very intelligent boxer. He's Terence Crawford is thinking six steps ahead. Right. Amir isn't. He's just like, oh, there's a chin. I'll throw a punch at it. <laughs> and he really is. And he often gets away with it against lesser opponents because of his speed and his physical ability and so forth. Um, and he's actually declined, I think, somewhat physically and, and up against the guy at his physical peak and a really, really, really smart boxer who's, who's thinking so far ahead. Yeah, it, it just, just wasn't uh, in the same league as they say. Levels. Yeah. Uh, so after the fight, Crawford's promoter, Bob Arum, said, We want to fight Errol Spence. Terrence wants it, and I think Errol wants it. There is one guy stopping it, and that's Al Heyman. All fans should refuse to patronize Heyman's fights until Spence fights Crawford. Uh, that is quite the spin from Arum on a fight where it's obvious both sides have been keeping these fighters apart so far. And the fact is that Spence has other options at welterweight. Um, even though Crawford is clearly the best option from a fan's perspective, Crawford doesn't have many options, so to me it looks like Aram is negotiating from a weaker position here, and it strikes me that he's hurting negotiations, not helping them by saying things like this. Uh, while this is the number one fight in the sport that I want to see, I would personally be surprised if Spence Crawford happened in the next 12 months. Are you any more optimistic than I am, Kieran? No, no, I'm not. And 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 Aram is going to P.T. Barnum his way to the very end, isn't he? I, uh, <laughs> I I can't believe that anyone would legitimately buy that spin. But it might all be for an audience of one um, to convince Crawford that Aram isn't at fault for his not getting a big fight. But, right. you know, Terence isn't an idiot. He knows. Um, and, yeah, the, the key element here is, as you said, the, the weakness of Bob's bargaining position. Unless this pay-per-view turns out to have done an extraordinarily large amount. Right. Um, which, which might change the dynamic entirely. Um, because otherwise, Spence, as you said, he does have plenty of options. He can keep making good fights he, and after he's beaten Thurman or Garcia or whoever else we have at, at that level is once he's gotten through all those guys you know then he's going to want to look to make a fight with Crawford um but that's not going to be for a little while uh, until then there's not any rush for him um the interesting thing is I think Crawford beats Spence I I, hmm. I really do I'm I'm so high on Terence Crawford um I think Spence could be uh, an A-level fighter, but I think Crawford's A+. He's potentially a generational talent. Uh, look, I've been banging that Terence Crawford drum for years. As you know, I was like, it was, I was saying he'd beat Manny Pacquiao yep. four years ago. Yep. Um, but it, God, it would be a travesty if he doesn't get the opportunity to demonstrate it at his peak. Um, and that's the downside to what's happening in boxing right now. Look, we've got lots and lots of boxing on TV and on streams, and that's fantastic. But the silos that fighters are in, at the moment, people are excited, and it's great because we're seeing quite a few good fights. But once we start not being able to see the fights, and it's the same with the heavyweights, and it's the same at the top of the welterweight division, people are going to start to get frustrated. We're going to have to find a way to bust out of these silos. Yeah, and unfortunately, with a guy like Crawford, we're left having to compare him to a guy in another weight class who he has no realistic chance of ever fighting, and that's Vasily Lomachenko. Instead of talking about real fights for him, a lot of the conversation surrounds the pound-for-pound -pound competition, especially with Crawford and Lomachenko having just both won on back-to-back -back weekends. It's really an unavoidable question of, of who's the pound-for-pound -pound king. Um, so let's, uh, you and I, take a, a moment here to address that topic. Based on Crawford Khan and Lomachenko Krola, do you see any reason for anyone's opinion to have changed from what it was two weeks ago? 
I don't know. I mean, look, I, Crawford is an A-plus talent, like I said. Um, mm-hmm. I think given the opportunity to demonstrate it against the right opponents and, and get back to that point, I really hope he has that opportunity. Mm-hmm. He will wind up not only a future Hall of Famer, but a potential, you know, top 50 or better all-time great kind of guy. I really think he's that good. He may actually be the best earthling in boxing right now. Um <laughs> It's just that I don't know what planet Lomachenko is from, but they do things differently there, and it's not earth boxing. It's something on a whole other level, and, and I do – you know, if if somebody wanted to find ways to, to look at it differently, yeah, you could say that, you, that the Brit that Crawford beat up was better than the Brit that Lomachenko beat up, but yeah, it wasn't a good week for Brits, was it? Uh, <laughs> But no, I, I think Crawford is fantastic. I think Lomachenko is on another level. And you know what I was thinking last night, actually, because it, it's funny. We all go through cycles, don't we? When, oh, who's the, who are the next people to come along? Or, oh, my God, look at all these top guys who are retiring. Who are going to be the, the people at the top? And boxing always refreshes itself. And boy, I tell you, you look at the top of the pound for pound list right now. Crawford and Lomachenko way ahead of the rest. And then you've got some really good talent right behind them it's we've got some real talent in the sport mm-hmm. right now and it's great that we're able to to have that discussion and have that debate because these are really really good fighters yeah yeah and i i like uh i like that uh idea that lomachenko is just uh it's not fair to compare him because he's uh, not not human I, th- I think they should put on his next fight poster maybe that's the slogan not earth boxing right. as the way to advertise his next fight right so on the pay-per-view undercard, uh, the three A-sides all won their fights. Teofimo Lopez, KO5 over Edis Tutley. Shakur Stevenson, unanimous decision over Christopher Diaz. Felix Verdejo, closer unanimous decision over Brian Vasquez. I don't think there's any sense in me asking you to rank the winners and their performances. The answer would be pretty obvious. So instead, I'll just ask, did any of the winners exceed or fall short of your expectations? So maybe not expectations, but hopes, and mm. I'll be the negative Nelly in this segment and do the full short bit, and this, that's Verdejo. Um, this was billed as his last opportunity to prove himself to top rank. Um, he's regressed, or he hasn't regressed, and what's happened is that as his quality of opposition has improved, he hasn't. He's just stayed still. Um, it's such a contrast. Like In the early days, he brought such a joyful energy to the ring. Uh, his, he was so fast. There, there was just a buzz. It wasn't just his skills and ability. It's the way he came to the ring. It was just everything about him, that, that entire charisma, as well as his talent. And this just felt like a slog. And credit to Brian Vasquez for helping to make it that way, of course. But Verdejo, to me, fought like a man with the world on his shoulders, mm. um, which on one level was great because at least that meant that he wanted to do well, that he was really putting a lot of effort into this. And, and that his dedication, which has been so questionable in the, in the past, was there. You could tell it meant a lot to him, but it was all very methodical and predictable and ordinary. Um, you know, Tim Bradley at ringside, and, and I think Dre as well, was saying that they just he, the guy needs new coaching. And maybe that's what it is. Or maybe he's just as good as he's going to be. Mm-hmm. He may have a fine career, but he just doesn't look like the guy who he's, who's going to have the great career that some of us, including me, gosh, I was high on this kid, um, once thought he would do, unfortunately. And that's a shame. Yeah. Um, so there was some other action. 
from around the boxing world on Saturday. Most notably, Danny Garcia's first fight back since his close loss to Sean Porter last fall. Uh, he became the first to knock out uh, Adrian Granados, just battering him, really, uh, scoring three knockdowns en route to a seventh round stoppage. And I think even that doesn't do full credit to the one-sidedness of it. Um, Eric, even though Garcia was the heavy favorite coming in, would you say he made a statement with his performance? Absolutely. Danny Garcia looked great against Granados, uh, and not everybody does. Uh, Adrian Broner needed yep. a questionable decision to beat him. He gave Sean Porter some problems. He gave Felix Diaz a tough fight. Granados is the definition of a tough out. And Garcia dominated him. Uh, two knockdowns in round two, another in round five. All of them really clean, hard knockdowns. Garcia looked fast and sharp. He couldn't miss Granados. Danny definitely made a statement here. This was his, hey, don't forget about me. Fight. Right. You know, he, he right. lost to Keith Thurman seven to five. He lost to Sean Porter seven to five. He, he's right with those two guys. They're all one tier, really, at welterweight. Danny Garcia reminded us that his name has to be mentioned right alongside Thurman's and Porter's when you're talking about the top guys at 147, that that whole not-quite-Spence-and-Crawford tier. He's right there with those other guys. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, and in London on Saturday, there were a pair of uh, fairly notable heavyweight bouts. Uh, Derek Chisora won a fairly dull 10-round decision over Sanad Gashi. But David the White Rhino Allen gave fans something to get excited over uh, with a third-round KO of Lucas Brown from a really good body shot. Um, do we need Eric to start paying closer attention to Allen or as a, as a fringe contender? Or is Brown, who we've seen before, get, get sparked? Um, is he just completely done? Uh, yes and yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, as, as you were uh, hinting at there, we saw Lucas Brown get splattered by Dillian White a year ago. He's 40 years old, and I got to be honest, uh, he's almost four years younger than I am. I think he looks at least four years older than I do. Uh, if you told me he was 48, I'd believe you. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't think much of Brown at all at this stage. But the White Rhino is kind of fun. He's, he's a popular guy in the UK. He has uh, an interesting gimmick, uh, stuffing his underwear at weigh-ins. Uh, you know, whatever it takes to get a little attention. Um, so he, he's not really a contender, but he's a fun fighter to have in the heavyweight mix. Um, I can see him maybe getting a payday against Tyson Fury if Aram wants to drag out the Tyson Fury tune-up tour for a while. He's the kind of guy right. who might make some money with a fight like that. Right. So that's everything that took place inside the ring this past weekend. Uh, but there was a lot of outside the ring news that we have to cover. And the biggest news, uh, literally and figuratively, <laughs> Jarrell Big Baby Miller got popped on not one, not two, but three drug tests. The New York Commission say... At time of recording, we should probably say. <laughs> right. We, we could be adding to that number at any moment. Uh, but the New York Commission is saying it won't license him. So Anthony Joshua suddenly needs an opponent for his U.S. debut. Uh, after some initial denials, uh, Big Baby owned up to it after the third test came out, uh, positive for HGH. Uh, he said after that, I messed up. Uh, that he did. Uh, Chris Mannix wrote on Twitter that, quote, his career is over. I don't agree with that at all. We've seen countless fighters get another chance after failing a drug test. Uh, I mean, does anyone even remember Canelo Alvarez's failed drug test just a year ago, which was the biggest story in boxing for months, and now it's like it never happened? Um, what do you think, Kieran? H how devastating is this to Big Baby's boxing career? So I have thoughts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Feel free to you know, go to the refrigerator or something, get yourself a beer or something. I'll be a while. Um, okay. So my first thought 
it's just profound disappointment because I really like Big Baby. Um, he's always an entertaining interview. He's fun to be around. I like his team, as you know. Um, he sells a fight wonderfully well. And even though I think he was almost certainly going to lose to Joshua, it felt like he could be relied upon to give it a real effort. And boy, he was certainly going to help sell it as an event. Um, I'm just tremendously disappointed that he's done this. And I do actually think that it is going to be tremendously harmful to his career. Uh, here's how I think the situation with Canelo is different. And yeah, like you said, let's not forget how massive at the time that situation was. Right. Um, and, and how much his positive test, what Canelo's positive test was a massive build up to, to that delayed rematch with Golovkin. I think if Canelo had lost that fight with Golovkin, we'd still be talking about that drug test um, because there'd then be this big doubt over him. But the fact that he went in and had that fantastic fight that he officially won mm-hmm. um, and was clean, um, you know, I, th- I think that that has helped play a role in, in sort of removing that from the memory. But um, the other, another thing is through all of this, whether you chose to believe it or not, and a lot of people did not, Canelo at least offered a an element of sorts of plausible deni- of plausible deniability, right? So sure. people have popped for clenbuterol after eating Mexican beef. And while that doesn't count as an excuse, especially when your trainer is a butcher, for God's sake, um, it can at least be an explanation um, particularly when you do go out there and win and win clean. But yes, lots of fighters have tested dirty once and, and we f- forget about it. Um, for example, we talked about Lamont Peterson the other week. I'd completely forgotten, <laughs> even though I wrote a piece about it, that he tested positive for elevated testosterone after his fight with Amir Khan. Right. And that caused Khan to cancel the rematch. I'd completely forgotten about that. Um, you know, Tyson Fury was out for a long time and for all kinds of reasons, but a significant part of that was a drug suspension. But one Undertaker meme later and, and all is forgiven. Um, <laughs> I think the difference here is the utterly cartoonish overkill of what Miller has done. Um, if it had just been the first test, that would have been bad, particularly because he's already been suspended once um, when he was kickboxing. Um, right. So he would have gotten suspended for that, I think. To then test positive for a second substance, okay, now you're very clearly engaging in a deliberate doping attempt. Um, And then to pop for a third, I mean, look, anyone who looks at Big Baby knows he has a big appetite, but come on, dude. Uh, It's just like Sideshow Bob stepping on a rake and then stepping (laughs) on another rake and then stepping on another rake. And and the thing is that that all lodges in the memory. And here's why I think it's it's unhelpful for his career. It it, it makes him not just the cheater, but an object of ridicule. And, And... And there's another way in which it's different from Canelo's. And it's not fair, but it's a real world way. Canelo is box office. He's one of the two most bankable stars in the sport, perhaps even number one. There was a huge coterie of fans that was ready to abandon him. But there was also a huge number ready to believe in him. And not only to support him through thick and thin, but to support him to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And Miller doesn't have that. And he doesn't have a big promoter behind him. He doesn't have Oscar De La Hoya leading his case in Las Vegas. Um... So what I so looking at it, if Canelo, after one negative test with at least some kind of explanation, gets a six month suspension, which he did, and we can all agree that it was really a slap on the wrist, right. but nonetheless, that's what it was. If Canelo, one test, an excuse, gets six months, big baby, with now at least four negatives in his career, possibly up to seven by the time I finish talking. Um, <laughs> I'd be surprised if he doesn't get two years suspension at least. And hmm. and even if everyone is forgiving, look, he's the kind of guy who time will pass 
and toward the end of those two years, he if if it is two years or whatever it is, you know, he's a he's a charismatic guy. He's a legitimately really nice guy. I could see him going out there, being honest, being on a kind of mea culpa tour, and people would be like, yeah, whatever, let him fight again. I don't really care anymore. But by then, time will have elapsed. He'll be older. He'll have to get himself into fighting shape. He'll have to find a promoter who wants to take that chance on him. And so even if his career as such isn't over, as Chris said, uh, I think his career of getting $7 million and probably fighting for the world title is probably going to be over. Okay, I, I can agree with that last point that he, he may never get, probably will never get an opportunity quite this big and lucrative. But all that said, uh, you know, I think I think we said similar things about Alexander Povetkin at one point, maybe about Luis Ortiz. He'll he'll be back and he will get another big fight. I am quite confident of it. Maybe not an Anthony Joshua level big right. kind of fight, but uh to me, the, the notion of his career is over uh, is, is extreme. He, he will get more opportunities unless he comes back and gets popped again. Then, right. then that might truly be the end. Right, right. Let's wait till the counter is over for, right. this, uh, <laughs> for this one. But yeah, but I do think he's going to get suspended for a long enough time that it's going to be just the logistics and the realities of him getting all his way back up to the top again are, are you know, going to be a big deal. Yeah, right. just, just a little bit. Little bit too uh, too cartoonishly overkill in terms of, uh, and it bums me out. I like the guy, but mm-hmm. anyway. All right, look, the other element of that story is that Joshua now needs a challenger on about six weeks' notice. Uh, Adam Konaki seemed like a solid option, but he reportedly turned it down because he wanted more time to prepare. Uh, there was talk of Luis King Kong Ortiz, which you've already alluded to, is a little ironic. Um, <laughs> Uh, now it looks as if the favorite might be Michael Hunter, uh, a 30-year-old blown-up cruiserweight, a son of Mike the Bounty Hunter. Um, one loss against Alexander Usyk in 2017. I was ringside for that. Um, like I said, he does seem to be the favorite for this gig. Thoughts on that or on Joshua's other options? Hey, man, give the white rhino a call. No? Uh, I, I, I don't... I don't see why six weeks isn't enough time for a heavyweight who doesn't need to right. make weight to, to prepare and make a huge payday. Uh, well, they do I'm... all have to flush their systems. <laughs> right. That, that, that's a, a troubling thing to consider, I suppose. Um, everything we're hearing suggests that the appealing options like uh, King Kong Ortiz aren't going to happen and that it's going to be Michael Hunter. Um, and that's just a massive come down for Joshua for New York fight fans, for DAZN, etc. What what a weird heavyweight year we're having. Uh, really? We, we thought we'd get Wilder Fury 2 and Joshua Miller. Uh, fast forward a couple of months, and Wilder Brazil is shaping up to be by far the best heavyweight yeah. title fight of the first half of the year. Um, yeah. So uh, Anthony Joshua is uh, stuck looking for an opponent for his uh, June DAZN fight. Uh, but meanwhile, in other news, Gennady Golovkin has found an opponent for his June DAZN fight. And it is one Steve Rolls, 19-0, 10 knockouts, 35 years old, out of Toronto. Apparently he fought on Showbox once, so I guess I've seen him. But I don't remember him. Uh, the puns using Rolls's surname are just too easy. And the marketing folks are either in on the joke or they're oblivious. As the fight poster reads in big block letters, Golovkin Rolls. Uh, <laughs> yeah, obviously. Do we even need to watch the fight now? Uh, 
Kieran, uh, we knew that Triple G wasn't going to face a real threat on June 8th. Were you hoping, though, for better than Steve Rolls? Uh, or, or is this just fine? And, and is Ludabella correct in yelling to anyone who will listen that Steve Rolls is a better fighter than everyone thinks he is? Yeah, I, I can't tell you if Lou is correct, although I certainly don't dispute your characterization that he's yelling about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, it's, I think it's fine. This was, it was, I'm not sure who he was going to get. It, it, he was never going to get a, a real challenge. Look, look Canelo's come back uh, after the second Golovkin fight was Rocky Fielding and, and then after, got that fight out of his system and now he's back at the top level. You know, Golovkin's in his mid-30s. He's been in some tough fights, including his last couple. And he's been on the shelf through this whole Canelo phase longer than, than he would like. Um, I just don't know enough about Rawls. I hope he's good enough to give him some rounds. I don't think it will do Gennady any good to have a Vanus Martirosian type situation. I think he needs to get some rounds in to get himself get his ring memory working again um, before he goes into September. And that's the important point is that, yes, this is all fine. Assuming that Gennady gets the uh, Canelo Jacobs winner in either a Jacobs rematch or a Canelo third fight in September in and of itself. Yeah. If he's going to spend his, his own contract fighting the likes of Steve Rolls, no, that's not good enough. But If this is just that stepping stone to that, then I, I guess it's fine. You know, it, it, the, the guy hasn't shirked anybody in his career. Right. Um, so here's a fun story that grabbed headlines in the last few days. Uh, the quote, as I think we both agree we're going to call her henceforth. Sure. And somebody proves, proves us wrong. Clarissa Shields. Uh, turns out that she isn't entirely content taking on fellow women. Uh, in an interview with TMZ, she was provoked by the interviewer who asked the question most of us in the boxing media would never bother to ask, most of us. Um, how, the, the interviewer asked how she would do against mailboxes. Clarissa, never one to hold back, as we, as we know, said, I, I think I could beat up Keith Thurman. I think I could beat Sean Porter too. And I can give Triple G a run for his money. So that led to a slew of follow-up headlines, including Sean Porter saying he won't fight her. <laughs> uh, and Terrence Crawford... Adding fuel to the fire, saying Shields would do well against Conor McGregor. Um, I'm not sure that I entirely – you're the right one of the two of us to take this answer and not offend just about everybody. But it is <laughs> up to your turn, so uh, I'm sure you have thoughts about this. <laughs> I do. I do. I'm not too concerned. Uh, I'll, I'll take my chances. Uh, I think back to – a discussion I was part of as a kid uh, when I was a, a serious tennis player. I remember some of my teachers at tennis camp talking about how would Martina Navratilova do against men? And the mm-hmm. consensus was she gets blown out by any top male player. But if you put her against some of the worst pr- professional men, like the number 700 ranked male tennis player, she could be competitive there. That's about how I'd handicap Shields' chances against a man. Uh, Call me sexist if you must, but she wouldn't last long against a Thurman or a Porter, and I don't want to even think about Golovkin. Um, But, you know, if you're putting her in against a sub-500 male pro at her weight, sure, she has the skill and craft and ability to be competitive. 
I know she could kick my ass and your ass. Uh, that much just, I'm certain of. You beat of. me to it. I was just about to say, <laughs> yeah, not even breaking a sweat. Yeah. yeah, there are definitely men she can beat up. Plenty of them. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully that's the end of this conversation because yes. men and women punching each other professionally is really not, not something good. we need to see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we have three more news items, uh, and this is quite a long podcast uh, this week. So let's go lightning round with these. Uh, quick item and quick response. First, Gary Russell Jr. has been added to the Deontay Wilder Dominic Brazil card on May 18th. He ends a year of inactivity against veteran Kiko Martinez. Thoughts on the fight and on the annual Gary Russell sighting? I mean, Kiko Martinez, I mean, he's been around a while. It's fine. But the difference between Gennady fighting Steve Rolls and Gary Russell Jr. fighting Kiko Martinez is that if past is our guide, as you said, we then won't see Gary Russell again for another year. Mm -hmm. Um, If we then... If he then takes this opportunity to fight twice this year and then goes and fights like a Leo Santa Cruz or someone like that, fine. Um, right. But don't vanish again for uh, for 12 months. If, if this is going to be your annual, if you're just going to pop up like, you know, poor Tuxit Phil or whatever his name is. Um, <laughs> once you, Punxsutawney. Puxatani as a Phil. as a Pennsylvanian, I uh, it's my go. duty to my, fill in uh, the blank. I on do that have one. a groundhog on my property, but I call him Portnoy. <laughs> okay. The groundhog. Uh, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna ask follow-up questions. There was a, there was a for Portnoy in early Bloom counties. Oh, okay. But anyway, this is for, for what was supposed to be a lightning round. <laughs> yeah, you're you're not good at lightning rounds. If Karen. you're only if you're only gonna pop up once a year, then you should be doing better than Kiko Martinez. If you're then gonna pop, make this two or three fights a year, a Kiko Martinez fight is fine for being out for twelve months. But um, anyway, uh, that's a fight that is happening. Uh, we are just two weeks away from the Canelo Jacobs card, and David Lemieux is supposed to face. John Ryder in the co-feature, but Lemieux hurt his right hand in training, so the fight is off. Uh, what's your level of bumditude over that? <laughs> uh, it's not so high because this matchup seemed a pretty weak co-feature anyway. Uh, the, the whole undercard is is very underwhelming, with or without Lemieux, uh, but the main event is outstanding. Uh, you know, it'd be nice if more casual fans who sign up to watch Canelo Jacobs get entertained by a great undercard too, but... I can understand that this is an expensive card for DAZN. I get them not wanting to spend a lot on the undercard. Whether it has Lemieux in a mismatch or not really doesn't make a huge difference to me. Um, Last item here, a fight has been announced for June 7th at Turning Stone Casino during International Boxing Hall of Fame induction weekend. Zab Judah, now 41 years old, is back again, meeting Cletus Selden, who had a very brief moment on HBO in 2017. How much would I have to pay you to watch this one, Kieran? Are you going to make me an offer? <laughs> a hypothetical <laughs> one? Sure. <laughs> uh, probably not enough. Um, <laughs> you know, we talked last week, I think it was, about saving fighters from themselves. And this is Zab's getting to be one of those instances. Um, you know, I look, I, I love Cletus Selden. I don't think he'll be the guy to, to inflict too much damage on Zab. But yeah, this is, you know, at some point these things need to stop but um and we'll see if zab makes it to the ring see if he makes it out of the shower first of all ah yes shower jokes yes all go back um <laughs> hey so look let me throw an unexpected one back at you you asked yep. me uh, a victor ortiz brandon rios career question here but let me ask you this um is this and attending in a guest capacity as close as zab actually ever gets to the hall of fame do you think he gets in I don't think he gets in. I think he's one of those fighters who maybe as a, as time passes and people didn't really watch his career, look at his record, they might see something 
better than the mm. reality. Um, so, so I guess that opens the door ever so slightly. But uh, no, I mean, I just think um, while he remained around the top level for a good long while, he only really succeeded at the top level for a short while yeah. uh, and then had one little moment of nice comeback with the, the beating Corey Spinks. Uh, yeah. that, you know, it, had he been able to extend that second run further, had uh, the Carlos Baldemir fight not happened, right. maybe Hall of, the Hall of Fame would have been uh, a possibility for him. But uh, no, I don't think he, he gets serious Hall of Fame consideration. Yeah. Yeah. You going to go this year? I'm actually thinking about it a little bit. Yeah, just getting close. I guess if I'm going to, uh, I better start uh, planning it out a, a bit. So I don't know. Well, let's discuss it. Maybe, off uh, maybe, maybe Seth can uh, get us to go podcast there. Be a good ah, podcast. Seth, you listening? Yeah, mm? right, right. Mm? yeah, I hope he's listening. He's hard. No, this is our test, <laughs> right. as we are now 70 minutes into the podcast. <laughs> right. Hope somebody's listening. Anyone? Anyone there? Hello. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's wrap things up uh, with just a quick mailbag question, uh, and then we'll call it a week. Uh, remember that you can tweet questions or comments with the hashtag AskShowPod. We got one this week from Brother Muzone, who took his Twitter name from a character on The Wire. But since HBO is dead to us, we have nothing more to say about that. Uh, Brother Muzone, or at Muzone Brother, as the uh, exact handle goes, writes... Uh, he has a couple of questions. One, what were the last big fights you, uh, I guess he was writing this to me because he says you and Kieran, but uh, what were the last big fights you and Kieran have attended that you weren't covering for work? And two, what is your favorite fight that you've attended A, as just a fan and B, covering as a reporter? So we have question one, question two A and question two B. You want to go first, Kieran? Sure. So last big fight. I, I There's actually no big fight that I've attended that I wasn't covering. I think the last fight that I attended that I wasn't covering was Mickey Conlon's pro debut. And that must have been because we had a fight at the garden the next day, probably a Terrence Crawford one. Hmm. Um, honestly, there have been very few fights that I've been at that I haven't been covering. Um, I bought a ticket to the very first fight that I attended was, it seemed random, but uh, Oscar De La Hoya, Yori Boy Campus. Hmm. And the reason that I did that was I was already thinking about going to Vegas and writing about, boxing and so i decided to go along to that otherwise in terms of not covering i had to think about this a bit when i was in i lived in las vegas for a while when i started writing about boxing and there would be uh, there was a club show i want to say either once a month or twice a month at the orleans which is just west of the strip and that's where Ishe smith got his start for example where a lot of good um uh, alfonso gomez got a lot of his early fights there mm. um and it, it was fun. It was always like a good sort of Vegas night, fight community night out or whatever. And those are basically the only fights that I ever went to that I wasn't covering in some capacity. Um, as for the favorite one that I've covered, well, there's two that really stand out and for different reasons. And one is Wembley 2017, Anthony Joshua, Vladimir Klitschko. Mm-hmm. Um, the event was incredible. The crowd was massive. Um, the significance of the fight was huge. It was all over the media before and afterwards. There was an immense buzz. I got to be at Wembley Stadium, uh, and it was a fantastic fight um, as well. But always for me, number one will be a fight that there were very few people at, but over the years, I think the crowd has swelled from about 4,000 to about 250,000. <laughs> and obviously that was Diego Corrales and Jose Luis Castillo. And... I will always 
be grateful for being at that fight which i still maintain is the best fight of the modern era and added to that i had the extra bonus of being sat next to literary giant bud schulberg during that fight so that whole combination of everything for me was, was fantastic those two and i've been really fortunate as we both have to have been at so many great boxing events um those two really do lead the pack for me all right i'll start my answer with the part of the question that you ended with uh just the the best fight attended as a reporter um we've discussed this a, a few times in the past uh that so i, I knew that uh, what what your two answers was were going to be and specifically that uh, that you would uh single out corrales castillo there for me it's ward gaddy one because yep. i wasn't at corrales castillo but i was at all the gaddy ward fights so so that's an easy one for me um as for fights i've attended as a fan I think, unless I'm forgetting something, I think I've only done it once. Um, and I realize how spoiled I am. Uh, yeah, but, me too. You know, I, was, I was thinking that yeah. myself. But it's just when you have the lux- luxury of sitting yeah. just a few rows from the ring for free almost whenever you want, uh, oh. buying a ticket for a mediocre seat just <laughs> isn't that appealing. <laughs> uh, the only time I can remember buying a ticket was in March 2000. There was an ESPN Friday Night Fights card at the Blue Horizon in Philadelphia. And I decided to buy three tickets so I could go with my parents. Uh, the card featured an upset loss for Elvir Kid Kosovo Mariki on a night when oh, Teddy wow. Atlas was uh, was doing no, double duty. Yeah, if right. you remember, if you remember the first time that he that Teddy Atlas did the double duty as a commentator and a trainer on the same night, uh, that was it at the Blue Horizon, uh, and Mariki lost. And the main event featured a big second round knockout win by the soon to become very notorious James Butler. Uh, and, oh, and, wow. yeah, and that's it. That's, that's the last and only time that I can think of that I bought a ticket to a fight. Uh, because that's a good one, Yeah. It, it's an interesting one, but you know, I'm very spoiled and, and very lucky when it comes to attending fights in person and I don't pay for it unless I have to. Yep, exactly. So there you go. Having concluded this marathon session by making the whole world realize that we are utterly spoiled brats when it Indeed. comes to boxing, we'll wrap this up. Uh, that'll do it for this week's ultra-length Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week to review the Easter versus Bartholomew card and to look ahead, of course, to the huge middleweight title showdown, Canelo Alvarez against Daniel Jacobs. Until then, thanks very much. And congratulations for listening all the way through.